You're listening to the Creekside Church Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message from Pastor George Willis, which is from the sermon series, The Bible Tells Me So. For more information, please visit our website at www.creekside.org. All right, uh, we're going to get right into it today. Uh, I will tell you, you will need this. If you don't have one, raise your hand and someone from our amazing guest services team will uh, help you out by getting you one. And you will need this page, which has Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 and 30 on it. Uh, I'm excited about today. We're in our fourth week of uh, this series. And I want to say welcome to Creekside Church, everybody. I want to welcome those who are online. If you're online, uh, let us know that you're with us and let those in-house know that you're with them by making some noise. Come on. Also, if you're watching online, uh, man, listen, we would love to have you join us in person. Maybe you can show up on second service at 1030, and I'll tell you why, because it is a whole different experience when you are here in person. So, uh, and I know there's a few people who watch first service and then come second service, but yeah, come on down if you are able and capable. Uh, we are in the fourth week of this series, and I'm pretty excited today because we are going to get a behind-the-scenes look at how to do a Bible study, how to do it. It's not going to be just information, it's going to be application. And uh, there's a lot I want to give you, so uh, like I said, we're going to it's kind of, you know, the, what's that saying? It's going to be like a fire hose in the face. And some of you are going, no, hey, listen, I have trouble with a garden hose. Um, it, it's going to be a lot, but you're going to want to take some notes. You're going to want that uh, Bible passage page because we're going to use it. Uh, and I hope you've been keeping up. For those of you who have been in the 40 Days Creekside Small Groups, I hope you've been keeping up with us in your daily devotionals of what God Uh, of what the Word of God uh, can mean in your life. Quick review. Week one, we talked about inspiration of Scripture. We gave seven reasons why you know you can trust the Bible as God's Word. Scientific reasons, historical reasons, and a lot of other different reasons that we know why uh, or we know for a fact that the Word is God's Word, the Word of God. Week two, we looked at the Bible's foundation. The reason why God gave us the Bible and what does it mean in our life and what, what... What does he want us to do with it to transform our life, to shape us into the person that God wants us to be? Uh, Last week, we talked about illumination. Illumination. And we looked at how God shows us what he wants us to see in his word. Through how? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the illuminator. And how the Holy Spirit enlightens our mind. This week, we're going to look at Two words today, or we're going to look at one word, actually, but I'm going to break it up in four. Observation of the Scripture. We're going to learn how to observe. More specifically, we're going to learn how to do a Bible study. Now, some of you I know, very few of us, are probably going, Yay, I got school tomorrow. I don't need it today. We're going to learn how to get what we get out of the Word of God. Basically, we're going to talk about a method and we're going to talk about an application. And uh, just to be forthright, a lot of what we're talking about, uh, because we're in 40 days and it was written and kind of uh, uh, put together by Pastor Rick Warren, a lot of what I'm saying is out of his book. 
uh, 12 Bible study methods. It's a great book. He put out a, a version of it for 40 days if you're going through it. Uh, but, you know, in, in a lot of schools and a lot of uh, seminaries, this, is a, uh, this book is a, a, a text tool uh, for their studies. So, with that said, we're not going to just learn how to, uh, or we're not just going to learn how to uh, study the Bible. We're going to learn how to study it in order to do a Bible study on our own. Hopefully, we're going to learn how to mine God's words uh, for nuggets of wisdom on our own. Does that make sense? So, again, you got to have this and you got to have that. This and that. Okay. Here's the secret to Bible study. I, I thought I'd just share it with you and then we could be done for today. In a perfect world. But we're in a broken and messed up world. Here's the, here's the secret to Bible study. It's simply learning to ask the right kind of questions. That is the secret to Bible study. Learning to ask the right kind of questions. The more you ask the right questions the more you're going to get out of it. The more you ask the right questions, the more you're going to get out of it. The Bible is a supernatural book. We know that. We've established that. And you can study a passage over and over and over again, and you will never, ever hit bottom. I mean, passages in the Bible that you can study over, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, uh, you know, Psalm 23, Psalm 119. You will never hit bottom because the Bible is a supernatural book. Remember, we talked about last week, it's one of the only books that you can read while you talk to the author. And when we learn the principles of observation, say observation, you will see things in Scripture you've never seen before. As I said, there's different kind of questions, different methods of Bible study. And, by, and these different methods are just simply asking different questions. For example, the devotional message or the devotional method, which we're learning in small groups. That's just one of the methods. The chapter summary method of Bible study, the character study of uh, Bible study. You study a theme or a biographical method of Bible study or a word study or a book background study or a Bible survey or a book survey or a verse-by-verse study. The list goes on. There's different methods of Bible study. And the difference between each of these methods are the type of questions that we ask. As I said, the more questions you ask, the more you're going to get out of a particular passage. And while they all have different kinds of questions, there are four categories, four categories to use in every one of those methods of Bible study, four categories. And we're going to learn how to do this. There's four words. Uh, I'm going to ask you to write these four words down on your note sheet. Write these four words down. Observation, interpretation, correlation, and application. Observation, interpretation, correlation, and application. These four things you will do when you sit down and you open your Bible and you look at a passage of Scripture to study it for yourself. Now let me quickly explain what these four words mean. And we're going to look at them a little bit in depth. Or then we'll go back and look at them in depth. The first step in any Bible study is observation. What is observation? Observation is asking the question, what does this say? 
What does it say? You simply look at the Bible. You look at the verse. You look at the story. You look at the text. You look at the passage, and you simply observe it. You write down what you observe, whatever you see. You don't interpret it. You're not trying to figure out the the deep theological meaning of that one phrase. You just, you know, write what it says. Ask the question, what is this actually saying? And you write it down. Remember, the difference between Bible reading and Bible study is you have to write something down to study it. I mean, if you're just reading the Bible, you're just reading it. So in observation, you simply look at the text and you go, what does this say? And you write it down. It might say this, or it might say that, or it might, you know, or you say, oh, it says this. That's the first step. The second step of, of um, Bible study is interpretation. Interpretation. That's where you ask the question, what does it mean? Observation, what does it say? Interpretation, what does it mean? First, what what. You, you ask, you know, what does it mean? People say, you know, doesn't the Bible mean what it says? No. The Bible means what it means. The Bible doesn't necessarily mean what it says. Because in every piece of communication, we often use what? Metaphors, allegories, um, analogies. We use phrases that literally don't mean what they mean. For example, if you've been around for any amount of time in the last year and a half, you have probably heard me say, are you picking up what I'm putting down? (laughs) Are you picking up what I'm putting down? Now, a thousand years from today, somebody finds that letter in another language, in another place and time, and it says, hey, George must be telling us to physically, literally pick something up off the ground that he put there. But that doesn't, you know, that doesn't mean, that, that's not what it means. What does it mean? It means, hey, I'm asking you if you understand. If we're on the same page. If you're getting it. If you're picking up what I'm putting down. Right? The point is, the Bible means what it means. I mean, how, how do you know what it means? By looking at the passage or the the text before it and the text after. We call that context. By looking at it through context and the context around it. Again, if I give you the word pin, P-I-N, right? What, What kind of thoughts are conjured up in your mind? What does that word mean to you? Some of you who like to bake might think, oh, it's a rolling pin. Some might think, oh, it's a bowling pin or a push pin. I mean, did you know that the word pin, P-I-N, had over, has over 60 different meanings? So you can't just say a word and, and go, oh, that word means this, because it doesn't. It doesn't mean that. What it means is what it means in the context. Say context. context. See, if I'm, and I don't do that to make you feel uncomfortable for all of you fellow introverts. I only do that just because sometimes we remember what we say. So it's not just purely for my enjoyment. Because I know some of us are, oh, I don't like it when he asks us to repeat words. Nope. 
It doesn't mean what's in the context. If I'm, if I'm talking about wrestling and I pin you to the floor, that's context. So you have to look at the verses around it. So what does it say? What does it mean? The third thing in this Bible study method is correlation. What is correlation? Correlation is when other verses help explain it, when other verses support it and help explain it. It's, it's, we, we get to this point where we ask, is there anything else in the Bible that would help me understand what I'm reading at this moment? That's called correlation. You correlate verses. You compare and you correlate. See, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. You use, you use the, the Bible to explain the Bible. One of the principles of interpretation is you interpret an unclear passage in the light of a clear one. In other words, if you read something in the Bible that doesn't make sense and you don't know what it means, you look for something else in the Bible that makes sense and help explain it. You always use what is clear to explain the unclear. If you don't get that, you're going to get some weird idea where you say, well, I think it means this when it doesn't mean that at all. And then next thing you know, you're forming a cult. Based on that one word. There are things that the Bible means and there are things that it definitely does not mean. The way you know and the way you figure this out and the way you understand it is by looking at what the whole Bible says. That's what we're going to learn how to do today. And then the fourth step is application. What is application? That's where we say, okay, what am I going to do about it? What am I going to do with this? So we look, what does it say? Observation. What does it mean? Interpretation. We correlate. What do other verses have to say about it to help explain it? And then application. What will I do about it? No matter what you're doing to study, you're going to ask these four questions. What does it say? And you write it down. What does it mean? That's the interpretation. What, what do other verses say about it? That's correlation. And what will I do about it? That's the application. Today we're going to look at, into how to do just that. We're going we're gonna to use some text out of the Bible. And we're going to take it and we're going to walk through this together today. We're not only going to study it for ourselves, but I want to show you how to study it. Or we're not only going to study it today together. I want to show you how to study it for yourself. The passage is in the book of Philippians chapter 2. If you have your Bible, please turn to Philippians chapter 2. If you don't, please take out that uh, piece of paper that has the passage on it. You're going to need it. If we can't see at, in here, then maybe we can get some house lights up a little bit brighter. Because this is a participatory Sunday. I want you have to see the passage today. So uh, is anybody having some difficulty seeing their passage? Because we always turn the house lights up. Let me give you a little background. It's Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter from Rome. Paul is the one who wrote most of the New Testament, or much of the New Testament, He's imprisoned in Rome for doing missionary work. 
and he's due to appear before Caesar. He's hoping one day to be released back to all of the churches that he started so he can begin to care and, and move the mission forward, care for others and move the mission forward. But he's not able to do so. So he's writing letters to the churches that he has started, and he's writing them from where? Prison. One of the letters that he wrote to the church started, uh, that he started in a city called Philippi. It's where we get the, the book of Philippians. See, you guys are learning already. It's where we get the book of uh, Philippians. Philippi is a, it's a city in Greece. And because he's writing to people in Philippi, that's why it's the letter to the Philippians. It's a real city in Rome. I mean, for example, the book of Romans is written to the people who lived where? Good job. If Paul was writing us a letter today, where, what, how would he address it? It would be the, the book of 1st and 2nd Mar- Martinians? Martians? So he's writing to the, the, the Philippians, and they had taken up a love offering for him and sent it to him, and now he's writing them back. What is he writing? The book of Philippians is actually an appreciation letter, a thank you note, in which he's writing to the people saying, thank you guys for caring for me. Thank you for sending me this offering. Thank you for supplying my needs. Now, you can open your Bible, or you can use your handy-dandy sheet we provided with the passage on it. Either way is cool. Or you even click on your favorite electronic device. In the middle of this book, Philippians 2, here's what he says, verses 19 through 30. It says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. In other words, I'm in Rome, I'm in prison, I can't do much. I hope to send Timothy, who's with me in Rome, to you in Philippi. goes on to say that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. Because he's heard news from them. I have no one else like him. I have no one else like him. You can underline that if you want. And who's he talking about? I have no one else like Timothy, who will show you genuine concern, uh, who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, and you can underline that, because as a son with his father, he served me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. He's saying, I hope to get back to see you soon in person. But I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus. He's my brother, he's my co-worker, and he's my fellow soldier. You can underline those three. Who is also your messenger whom you sent to take care of my needs. In other words, they sent this guy Epaphroditus with the offering to Rome to tell Paul about how they're doing. So he's, you know, he said, he's your messenger, you sent me, but I'm going to send him back to you. Why? Because he longs for you all. Epaphroditus is uh, homesick, and he's distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, and he almost died, but God had mercy on him. And not only him, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. In other words, I'm not just in prison. I might have just lost a good friend. 
says, therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, Epaphroditus, so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor men like him. Underline that phrase. Honor men like him. Because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life. Underline that. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. In other words, you couldn't be here, so you sent him, and he risked his life to get from Greece to Rome. And you need to welcome him with joy and honor. You need to welcome men like him. Now, if you read this passage, which we just did, you might go, well, listen, PG, that's not very deep. You know, it's, it's just kind of a note of appreciation. Hey, thanks. Way to go. High five. You might even read this and go, why did God even put that in the Bible? It seems insignificant. I mean, Paul's just talking about a couple of friends, Timothy and Epaphroditus. He goes, you guys sent them to me, and I'm going to send them back to you, and you need to honor them And when they get there. It doesn't sound like a very meaty passage of Scripture or some big encouragement to me. You might even think that's just a passage you, read, you, you just read through quickly and skip over, you know, to get to the good stuff in the Bible. But if you did that, you would be wrong. You would be dead wrong because you didn't do the observation. You didn't do the interpretation to get to, to you know, get the true meat out of it, to mine the true nuggets of God's truth. Let me show you a couple of verses. We talked about these uh, in the last few weeks. 2 Timothy 3.16, it says this. Read it with me. All Scripture, all Scripture. What's he talking about? Not, not part of it, not just the Scripture you like, not just the Scripture that agrees with your philosophy. All Scripture, all Scripture, all Scripture. That means the stuff that even seems to be insignificant to you. All Scripture, all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful. It is all useful to teach, to teach us what is true and make us realize what is wrong in our life. It corrects us when we are wrong and it teaches us to do what? To do right. So even this passage where Paul is just saying these friends my buddies, my pals, these, these co-workers, Timothy and Epaphroditus, he goes, I'm going to send these guys to you. But the Bible says that all of Scripture is inspired, even this part. Even this part has something to teach us. And you're going to see that in just a minute. Let me show you another verse. Romans 15:4 says what? For everything, that's not some things, that's everything. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, even this part, so that through the endurance taught in the Scripture and the encouragement they provide, we might have what? Hope. This story, this passage that I just read to you, the Bible leaves it in, and God puts it in the Bible because we need encouragement for our hope. You might say, I I didn't get any encouragement or hope out of this. It's because you haven't studied it yet. You just read it. 
So what we're going to do is actually look at this very powerful passage, Philippians 2, 19 through 30. And this is going to be particularly for men. All the men in the house, raise your hand. Some of us didn't because we're men. This is going to be, this passage is particularly for men, and I'm going to talk to men today. And most of the men are going, great. But here, ladies, don't fret, because I do. I, I have a genuine care and pastoral concern for you, um, and you're going to get something out of this as well. But it's primarily a passage for men. Are we cool with that? All right. But we're all going to learn. We're all going to learn how to study the Bible. Now, I want you to take your Bible or that piece of paper and, uh, of Philippians 2, and take your note sheet, and we're going to go through these four steps. What does it say? Observation. What does it mean? Interpretation. Uh, you know, what else in the Bible says something about it? Correlation. And what am I going to do about it? Guess what? That is called application. First, we start with observation. What does it say? Uh, this is where we simply look at it. This is where we look at it. We read through it several times, and we just write down what we see. We just write down, not anything elaborate, just write down whatever you see. I kind of did it sneakily for you. I said, underline this, underline that, underline that. We can see three things in this passage. First, we observe that Paul intends to send two men to where? Philippi. See, that's just an observation. There's nothing elaborate about it. There's nothing spiritual about it. God is sending two dudes back to Philippi. It's what we see. In verse 19, he says, I hope to send you Timothy. Again, let me uh, reiterate. We're going to reference this passage, so that's why I gave you the, the passage printed out on uh, the paper. Now, m- most of you sitting in the chairs, you're probably going, oh, now I wish I sat at a table. There's one of the guys in verse uh, 25, he says, I think it's necessary to send Epaphroditus back to you. He actually came from that church, and, I'm, and I, I want to send him back home. So he says, I'm going to send you two guys. Who we, who's he sending home? Timothy and Epaphroditus. The second thing we observe is that Paul endorsed these guys as role, uh, role models. You with me so far? In fact, they're, not only are they endorsed as role models, but he said that they are two men to be honored. Paul endorsed Timothy and Epaphroditus as role models who deserve honor. In verse 20, uh, Paul says about Timothy, I have no one else like him. If you haven't underlined that one, go ahead and do that now. I have no one else like him. You might read that and you just might, you know, let it go in one ear and write out the other, or you read that and you're thinking about the burrito you're going to have for lunch. But the truth be told is that the greatest endorsement you can, this is the greatest endorsement you can ever receive as a Christ follower. I have no one else like him. Paul is the, I mean, the Apostle Paul is the greatest Christian who, who ever lived not named Jesus Christ. the Lord himself. And Paul says, I've got nobody in the world like Timothy. If Paul said that about you, that means you are top of the heap. You are cream of the crop. You are the man or you are the woman. If Paul said that about you, I I got no one like, you know, harmony. 
There's no one like Kyle. There's no one like my wife Kristen, or Kristen. That would mean the greatest possible compliment you can ever receive for your faith. So now, because he said, I got to pay attention, right? He says, I got nobody like Timothy, no one like Timothy. Then, uh, you know, what about Epaphroditus? He says in verse 29, welcome him and honor men like him. Honor men like him. So he's saying whatever these guys are doing, they're unusual, they're unique, they are worthy of honor. You need to follow them and you need to honor them. Notice in both of them, he says, like him. Honor men like him, Epaphroditus. I have no one like him, he says about Timothy. And any time, whenever I see the phrase used twice in Scripture, it means God is kind of telling me something. I have nobody like him. Honor men like him. And that naturally makes us ask a third observation question. So what are these guys like? Why are they so special? Why are they so worthy of honor? Why do they deserve to be praised? What are these guys actually doing in their lives that makes them so awesome? So we ask a question, and then we read through the passage again. Yeah, part of the process is reading it over and over again. And we find that Paul, from observation, that he sees, that Paul sees five things about these two men. Five things. Verse 20 and 21, he says about Timothy, he takes a genuine interest in you. Timothy takes a genuine interest in you. You can underline that. Verse 22, he says about Timothy, he has proved himself. In verse 25, you can underline where he says about Epaphroditus, he is my brother, he's my fellow worker, and he's my fellow soldier. And you read that, you go, ah, I, gotta, I think I've got to kind of figure out what that means. In verse 26, he says, he longs for all of you and he is distressed. Talking about Epaphroditus. Remember, he almost died on the way to meet Paul. And in verse 27 through 30, he says, he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life. You see what we've done there? We've read it and we wrote down, we underlined what we saw. Paul's talking about two guys. He's going to send them back to Philippi. He endorsed them as role models, and he says we ought to honor them. So here we see that these guys have five characteristics in their lives, just based on observation, nothing super spiritual. Now we go to interpretation. That was observation. Now we go to interpretation. And I believe that this passage is, is an extremely powerful passage because it gives us five marks of what it means to be a man of God. See, now I think you're kind of picking up what I'm putting down. Five marks of what it means to be a man of God. The five marks of what it means to be a godly man. Or for that matter, a godly woman. It's just not, you know, inclusive uh, or such. What's the word I'm looking for? Exclusive. There it is. <laughs> I was getting there. Power of deduction. 
If you want to be the kind of person that uh, God blesses, if you want to, you know, if you want God to use you, if you want God's power in your life, then my belief is we need to study this passage. So I gave it to you on a paper instead of just putting it in the, on the big Bible in the sky. Because it tells us five characteristics of the man of God or the woman of God and we see in these, that we see in these guys and that we're to build our lives around or on or into our lives. We are to be like them and we're to honor men like them. So now, let's go back and let's look at the five things we just observed, that we just underlined, and say, what do these five things actually mean? And let's look at them in detail. Verse 21, we find the first characteristic where Paul says about Timothy, I have what? No one else like him or like him. And again, these, these won't be up here because I gave it to you on your sheet or you read it in your Bible. Paul says about Timothy, I have no one else like him. Why is nobody else like him? Because it says he takes a genuine interest in your welfare and everybody else only looks out for their own interests. So Paul's saying something about Timothy here, isn't he? He says that's rare. That characteristic is rare. It's unusual. That's different. I got nobody like him. He has a genuine interest in your welfare, in other people's welfare, and nobody else does it like that. Everyone else is looking out for their own interest. And one of the ways you interpret Scripture is by comparing it to other translation, uh, tr translations. In English, fortunately, we have dozens of translations of the Bible. You say, why do we need so many translations? Fair question. Because no single word adequately can explain another word in a language. It often takes a phrase to explain a word. For instance, the Bible was written uh, in over 11,000 Hebrew and, and Greek words. 11,000. But the average English translation, no matter which one you've got, uses only about 8,000 English words. That means something is getting left out of kind of the, the complete or fuller meaning. For example, in English, we only have one word for love, right? Love. It, it's kind of like, you know, we use it to refer to everything. I say, I love Jesus. I love my wife. I love my husband. I love popcorn, which is truth. I love America. Um, I love hip-hop, which is also true. <laughs> if you don't know what that means, you've got to go see Jesus Revolution. <laughs> see, I just use the word love in multiple ways. In English. Pretty much one word for love. Love. Greek was way more technical. Much more precise than that. For instance, in Greek, they have four words for love. Eros, where we get the erotic love from, sexual love. Storge, which means strong love. Phileo, which means brotherly love. Phileo, uh, Philadelphia. It's the city of... You guys are so smart. And agape, which is unconditional love. 
And all these words are used in Scripture. So there are different words where we, where we in English only have one word. You with me? So you look in different translations, and every translation has an interpretation on it. And what happens, you get this bigger interpretation without having to know any Greek or Hebrew. Isn't that awesome? Yeah! It's a good thing. So a couple other translations of this verse that we're looking at. It says, Timothy genuinely cares for you while others only care about themselves. Or he says, that's why he's worthy of honor. Another translation says, everyone else, they're all wrapped up in their own affairs. Okay, so here, we have the first characteristic of a godly man. Ready? A godly man is caring. First characteristic, uh, he's caring. A godly man is compassionate. He's caring. He's unselfish. He thinks about others. He's not just thinking about himself. He's caring. Timothy genuinely cares about you. Everybody else is only interested in their own agenda, their own ideas, their own business, their own thing that they've got to do. And he says, that is worthy of honor. Timothy's genuine concern is worthy of honor. Friends, if there's ever a message that needs to be uh, uh, preached today, it's that one. Because everything in our culture teaches us to be self-centered. Everything teaches us to be selfish and not unselfish. Everything in our culture teaches you to care only about yourself and not about anyone else. Every advertisement is all about you. We do it all for you. Have it your way. Obey your thirst. You deserve the best. You deserve a break today. Look out for number one. Listen, PG, I've got to think about what is best for me. I've never seen an ad telling you to be unselfish. Music, movies, TV shows, novels, magazines, video games are all about you. The most popular video game format today is called First It's not about you helping anybody else. So it's rare to find an unselfish man. It's rare. Paul says, I don't have anybody like Timothy who genuinely cares about other people. Everybody else is only caring about themselves. They're not self-giving. They're self-centered. Like I mentioned, I'm mostly talking to men today. But I care about the women in our church as well. Those of you who are single women, I want you to know that I care about you as well. So I've made a, a list for you. A list on how to identify a selfish man before it's too late. <laughs> you might want to you, you write these down. How to identify a selfish man before it's too late. It's not a joke. They're serious. <laughs> you ready? Women? Women, let me hear you. You ready? Say, I'm ready. All right. One, does he talk only about himself? Does he only talk about himself? Two, does he ever open the door for you? Three, has he ever showed up with lunch because he knew you were too busy to eat and he sensed it 
and you didn't have to tell them at all. That's a caring person who's more interested in just his own agenda. Four, does he ever go out of his way to make you feel safe? Five, does he ever ask for your opinion on anything? Six, does he ever ask you for, you know what? Don't make me say it. Three letters. If you know what I'm talking about, you can type it in the, t- in the chat. Does he ever ask you for sex? Does he say, if you really love me, you will let me? And you know what you say? If you really love me, you'll wait. Seven, will he cancel his plans if you're sick so he can take care of you? That's an unselfish man. Number eight, is he obsessed with his appearance? Or is he more fascinated by yours? Nine, will he do something that he doesn't like just to be able to spend more time with you? That's an unselfish man. And ten, does he, you know, pick up his messes or expect you to clean up after him? Now, some of you wives, I'm going to ask you not to elbow your husband. But a godly man is a caring man. You see what we're doing here? We're getting method and we're getting God's truth. The second thing we're going to learn about Timothy, it says, Timothy has proved himself. I want you to underline that he proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served me in the work of the gospel. The word proven there means tested. It means verified. It means vetted, determined, and reliable. This guy is ram tough. This guy is dependable. This guy is reliable. This guy has proven faithful and is what the Bible call, or it, this guy is proven and is what the uh, Bible calls faithful. Listen, friends, the greatest ability in life is dependability in life. The number, the number of people who are dependable, who don't flip-flop, who aren't wishy-washy, the number of people who keep their word, do what they say they're going to do, let their yeses be yeses and their noes be noes, who keep their promise even when it hurts them, this is unusual. God is looking for men who are caring, and what is needed today more than ever are men who are consistent. God is looking for men who are consistent, proven trustworthy, not flaky, dependable, reliable, keeping their word, not ghosting, men of conviction and character. You know the difference between conviction and an opinion? Opinion is something you will freely give and argue about. Conviction is something you will die for. Opinion is something you'll argue about. Conviction is something you'll die for. Let me ask you this. Do you have any convictions in your life? Because God knows we have a lot of opinions. Do we have any convictions in our life? Do you have? Because you're not ready to fully live until you're ready and willing to die for something. Are you willing to die for anything? Because until you know and have made that list, I would die for this, I would die for that. You're not living. You know what we're doing? We're just existing. God is looking for consistent men. Godly men 
are not just caring, they're consistent. They are proven reliable, they're committed to God's standards, and they are consistent in their values. They don't act this way with one group of people. They don't act that way with another group. They don't act one way at school and one way at home. You know, my wife and I used to joke about our daughter that she would, you know, give all of her friends' parents the very best of her character, and we get all the worst. <laughs> They're consistent. How many of us as a kid ever gro- uh, growing up ever wondered if our dad was going to hug us or slug us? You know, because maybe our dad was moody. He was unpredictable. He wasn't consistent, which means, and the truth is, they might not be a godly man. It's a cliche that's so true. If you don't stand for something, you will fall for anything. A godly man is caring. He doesn't just care about his own agenda. He cares about other people. A godly man is consistent. He is proven reliable. Three, next verse, he says, I send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, and my fellow worker, my fellow soldier. My brother, my worker, fellow worker, my fellow soldier. He gives us three metaphors that are relational. Brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier. He says, he's also your messenger because you sent him to me to take care of my needs. You sent him to bring me good word of what you guys are doing. And each of these three metaphors has something in common. And what they have in common is cooperation. A godly man is cooperative. He says, he's my brother. Why is it so important? Because, you know, in this Christian life, when we're, you know, a Christian in God's family, one, we're family, we know it's a fellowship, and we know it's a fight. We are family. We're related. Did you know that the phrase brother and sister is used about 130 times in the Bible to refer to Christians? Brother and sister. For thousands of years, church members always referred to each other as brother and sister so-and-so. Why? Because the church is a family, not an institution. Sorry, I get a little passionate about that. The Bible tells us in Scripture that we are to treat older women in the, in the church as mothers, older men in the church as fathers. We're to treat uh, 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 some younger uh, males as brothers and the young women as sisters. Why? Because we're a family. We're children in God's family, and we're brothers and sisters. The point is there's relationship there. And not only are we family, but we're in a fellowship We're fellow workers. That means we have the same task, the same mission, the same great commission. We're to work together, to serve together. We are fellow fellow workers. And not only are we co-laborers, we're fellow soldiers. Family, fellowship, fight. Because we have the same battle. Guess what? It's against the same enemy. Satan. So we support each other. We encourage each other. That's why we have small groups because we can do this together. A godly man is cooperative. Listen, when you see a guy that says, hey, listen, I I don't need anybody else. I'm a lone wolf. I'm a lone ranger. He's not a godly man. When you see someone who says, listen, I, I don't need the church to be a Christian. I don't need the church. I don't need a small group. I don't need anybody else. He's proving that he doesn't really know how much he needs what he really needs. Because nobody has it all together. 
Nobody is perfect. We need each other. You have strengths that I need, and I have strengths that you need. We need each other. A godly man, a godly woman is cooperative. They're not lone wolves. They're not difficult to get along with. They know how to be on a team. They're team players. They know how to work. They know how to give, and they know how to take. In business, guys will pay, you know, uh, managers will pay maximum bucks for people who have relational skills. Guys who have, have a team mentality, who know how to play on a team. Paul, of, you know, of all people, is a spiritual superstar. Yet he even knows that we're better together. That we get more done when we work together. He recognizes that we need each other. And a godly man knows how to work with others and he knows how to be a team player. He's relationally cooperative. He's caring. He notices other people's needs and not just his own. He's consistent and you can count on him. He keeps his word and he's cooperative. The the fourth thing, verse 26, it talks about Epaphroditus and it says, For he, Epaphroditus, longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Notice the emotional content of what's going on at that moment. Here's a church over here in Greece uh, called the Church of Philippi that's started by Paul. Paul's in prison in Rome in Italy and they take up a love offering to send Paul. Then they say, we need somebody to take it. One of the businessmen in the church, Epaphroditus goes, okay, I'll do it. Knowing he's going to have to walk. There was no planes, trains, and automobiles in those days. He's going to have to walk. He's going to have to walk all the way around from Greece to Italy. And there's going to be bandits. There's going to be no motels. There's going to be no hotels, no RV parks. He's going to have to leave his business behind for a few months. Not just a couple of days, not just a week, but a few months. He's going to leave his business behind while he goes off and does this. And he's going to, he's going to do this at a great personal expense. Now on the way, Epaphroditus gets sick. Not shocking, he's walking. He gets sick and he nearly dies delivering the offering which the people were entrusting with him. We believe, you know, they're saying, hey, listen, we believe you won't spend it, you won't rip us off, you'll get it to where it needs to be because you are a man of integrity. And on the way, he nearly dies. And when word gets back to the home church that Epaphroditus nearly died, what happens? This church gets all worried. And what is his reaction? Epaphroditus, his reaction to their worry was he was distressed by their distress. He is concerned about their concern. He's worried about the fact that they're worried about him. Are you understanding this? He's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about how his actions and his words are causing grief to other people. And this is the fourth characteristic of a godly man. A godly man is considerate. Considerate considerate means you, you think not just about what other people say, but you think about their emotions. You think of how what you say and how you act is going to affect other people. He's distressed about their distress. Are you ever distressed about anybody else's distress? Are you ever worried about 
anybody else's worries? Are you ever concerned when somebody else is, is afraid? Or do you just go, ah, get over it. Walk it off, kid. It's merely a flesh wound. See, a godly man is considerate. He's concerned about the feelings of others. Now, sometimes I'll hear a guy, and you may have heard this too, they'll just go, ah, I just say what I think. I just tell it like it is. Right? It's kind of like they brag about it. You know, there's a word for that. And the word is rude. An idiot can say what he thinks. It takes a mature man to hold his mouth when he knows he needs to hold it. You know who say what they think? Kids. Little kids. They just blurt it out. They have no filter on their mouth. And if you have no filter, don't be proud of it. I just say what I say and I, you know, I let the chips fall where they may then you're not a very mature man. Because grown-ups know there's a time to say things and a time not to say things. So don't be proud of being a man-child. A godly man is considerate. Let me show you a verse in 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, in the same way, be what? Considerate as you live with your wives. Be considerate. We're We're not by nature considerate. In fact, we're typically inconsiderate in so many areas. And the number, one, the number one cause of marital problems is simple selfishness. Can I get an amen? amen? A lot of women said that. Can I get an amen from the men? We say what I want, I want, when I want it and how I want it. And when you want what you want, you are inconsiderate of each other. We're inconsiderate primarily in our decisions and how we make decisions. We're inconsiderate of each other's fears. We're inconsiderate of communication. We must be considerate of one another. Funny story on how men and women make decisions are also very different. Here's an example. Let's say you need to go to the Gap to buy a a pair of pants. And if you're going to the Gap, first we're going to let the women go. The woman goes in and she makes a detour to Macy's and she stops at every other store in Sun Valley Mall along the way. Then she goes by J.C. Penney's just in case and then after that she stops for lunch, uh, you know, to check online to see what they have to offer as far as pants. Then after lunch they head over to Nordstrom's and Walnut Creek and then they finally come back to the Gap. The man, he just makes a beeline for the Gap. So, In buying a pair of jeans, it takes the man six minutes and 50 bucks. The female, it takes four hours, 26 minutes, and it costs almost 900 bucks because she bought a bunch of other things on the way while she was planning. It's just the way we are. But here, we need to be considerate of each other. Men, I'm going to give you the secret to a long, successful, and happy marriage. It's just two words. Ready for it? It's yes, dear. So godly man, a godly man is considerate. And the last one, verse 5, or verse 27, sorry. Indeed, talking about Epaphroditus, he was ill and he almost died. He almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life 
to make up for the help that you couldn't give me. He's saying, you guys in Philippi, you couldn't come and help me when I was in prison in Rome. So you sent Epaphroditus on the way, trying to walk from Greece to Rome, and he nearly died. Catch that phrase, risking his life, because it's the fifth characteristic of a godly man. A godly man is courageous. He risked his life, almost died for the work of Christ. For the work of Christ. Risking his life to make up for the help that this church couldn't give him. A godly man, like we said earlier, is fearless. And I pray that the Lord makes us fearless. Notice what he's courageous about. Risking his life to make up for the help that you couldn't give me. He's courageous, not for his own benefit. He's taking risks for the benefit of the kingdom of God. Because here's what I know. There is a world full of guys who take risks for themselves. They'll take a risk as long as they're personally going to benefit from it. I'm not talking about risking so that you can get the glory, men. Or risking something that you can make a lot of money on. I'm talking about risking for the benefit of somebody else. How often do you do that? Listen, I know you made your risks in business, maybe taking a new job to make more money. You made risks in your sport life. How often do you actually make life-taking risks for the benefit of somebody else? Because that's a godly man. Epaphroditus made an inconvenient journey for the benefit of another. He put... What he did was he put the cause of Christ before his comfort. Paul's in prison in Rome and he's in Greece. The church takes up a love offering. No planes, no trains, no automobiles. And he volunteers to be the courier and nearly dies. Yet he perseveres in spite of the pain. He's committed to finishing what he started. Let me ask you this. If your pastor, that's me, ask you to carry an offering or take an offering to another church and you would have to walk 700 miles to do so, would you actually do it? For the benefit of another church, would you actually do that? That's the kind of courageous attitude a godly man has. There isn't many men like that today. It's rare. Most people say, I'll live for Christ when it's convenient. When it doesn't infringe on my calendar. I mean, I love the church as long as there, you know, there's not a good game on. I mean, if the game's coming on soon, I'll leave early because the game is more important to me than God. God uses courageous people who put people before profit and who put courage before comfort and convenience, who put service before security, who put purpose before popularity, who takes risks for the kingdom, who serves God and others with reckless abandon. That's godly man. And Paul says, you need to honor men like that. You need to honor. The phrase he risked his life in Greek literally is he hazarded his life. It's a gambling term. He's rolling the dice. I don't know if I'm going to make it, but I'm going to do it. I don't know what's going to come, but I'm going to do it. I got to get that offering to Paul. And if I die trying, so be it. I'm trying. He's a God gambler. And I see a lot of men gambling their life on stupid stuff today. Instead of gambling on stuff that will make their lives count and last forever or benefit someone else, 
What we see Epaphroditus doing is gambling his life on for Jesus. Is your commitment, men, is your commitment to Christ deep enough to cause you to risk anything in your life? Or is it just a convenient faith? Because today's Christianity, I feel, is, you know, is filled with limp religion. No teeth in it. No commitment. No sacrifice. No heroes. But I thank God that Creekside Church is filled with godly men and women. Men and women who are godly gamblers. Because listen, you don't put on an annual crab feed and host hundreds of people from our community and raise over $50,000 for our community without having a bunch of guys, a bunch of women who said, hey, listen, we'll do it. We got this, PG. We're going to go for it and we're going to do it. Think of the excuses that Epaphroditus could have used. Listen, man, I can't. I got a business to run. I got a family to raise. I got kids in sports and, you know, they're practicing five times a day and they got games twice a week and on Sunday... You're going to ask me to leave my work to go do this? Take two or three months to travel to another nation to help a church? You'd probably say, no way, Jose. Paul says, I don't have anybody like Timothy. He genuinely cares about other people. He doesn't, you know, other people who only care about their own agenda. I thank God for the godly men of courage at Creekside. Guys like my friend Billy Butler. I don't know if you guys know this or not, but he's one of our, if not the longest standing member of our church. Not one of the long, I mean, listen, he's also one of the many men who built this building that we are sitting in today. He knew how to build stuff. He did it while providing for his family. He built this place while working full time. He built this place while raising kids. He put in the time, not making excuses, and he still talks about it today. That's a godly man, a man who made his life count for more than just making money, for more than just having fun. He made his life count in helping to give us, you and me, a place to meet every Sunday and throughout the week. We have stories like that all through the church. Guys, there's, I'm going to see if I can edit this because I know we are way behind. That's the observation. We looked at interpretation. Correlation is this. Correlation is we ask in the Bible study, or in, in a Bible study, is there anything else in the Bible that will help me understand this passage? And the answer is yes, there is. Timothy and Epaphroditus are, are mentioned a couple of times. Timothy in the book of First and Second Timothy. Epaphroditus is mentioned later in Philippians. I want to encourage you guys, if you don't have one, get a concordance. If you have a, a, a study Bible, you have one that in the back has a word index. Why is that important? Because to correlate, you need to understand where the words are in the Bible that you're looking at. For example, if, the, you know, if I'm looking at, hey, I want to know what the Bible says about debt as I have the worship team Actually, no. Worship team, you hang out there. Don't worry about it. If I want to ask about debt, I look up in the concordance, either Strong's Exhaustive or the simple uh, word index in the back of your Bible. What does it say about debt? And I look up every single verse in the Bible that uses the word debt. The same goes with any other word. 
Most study Bibles himself, like I said, has a baby concordance, a word index in the back. Sometimes you can't remember, or sometimes you can remember a word in a verse, but you can't remember the address of the verse. For God so loved the world. I don't know where that one is, so I look up world and I find it. You need one of these for correlation. You cannot do it without it. You can't do correlation any other way. You've got to get a concordance. And if you are involved in our 40 days small group, in the back of your 40 days workbook, uh, didn't bring my wimpy, in the back, the, uh, there, there is a section in there for Bible study called Tools for Effective Bible Study. Take some time to read that this week. You'll be glad you did. Finally, application. Here it is. It's the most important thing of all. You heard me say it before. You only believe the parts of the Bible you actually do. Remember our, our memory verse, James 1.22. Who remembers it? It says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. Do what it says. And we're learning how to do that. We talked about picture it. We talked about pronouncing it. Say a word one at a time. The last, uh, in, in this last week, uh, in our small groups, you probably, or we're going to talk about, or no, we have, uh, space seps. Space pets. Sorry. Basically, it's this. What is a space pet? It's a sin. Is there a sin? You ask, is there a sin I need to confess? Is there a promise to claim? Is there an attitude to change? Is there a command to obey? Is there an example to follow? Is there a prayer to pray in this verse? Is there an error to avoid? Is there a truth to believe? Is there something I should thank God for? And I think there is. I think there is. When we space pets this passage, there is a sin to confess. Yes. Is there a promise to, or maybe, is there a promise to claim? No. Is there an attitude to change? Yes. Where he says, honor men like this. Is there an example to follow? Yes. He gave us five examples. We just went through it, right? The example of consistency and caring and cooperating and consideration and courageousness. So we look at this and the command to obey, it's honor. The example to follow, five, an attitude to change, yes. So we write one sentence for each of those. What are we going to do to change it? What are we going to do about it? What is a practical, uh, personal, possible, provable uh, thing we're going to do? And we set a date. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. So much content, so little time. One of the things I want to challenge you with based on our, this passage and take it home and read it is ask yourself this question, how can I honor other people? How can I honor other people? Again, friends, this is a message that is desperately needed today because we're in a culture that idolizes celebrities. We're in a culture that idolizes celebrities. Shall, shallow people doing shallow things. We put them on the cover of magazines and we pay them a lot of money to do what? To be shallow. I heard a quote, maybe from Rick, since we're in his study. He says, you know, this, you know that the sun is setting on a culture when short, small men cast long shadows. Today we pay millions of dollars to guys who are thugs and ought to be put in prison. But you know what? We call them celebrities. 
And guys who consistently move from one woman to the next in serial adultery, and we act like it doesn't even matter. We're actually, some of us are idolizing that lifestyle. That's the man. That's stupid. What we desperately need today are men of God. What we desperately need today are women of God who are caring, consistent, cooperative, who are considerate, and who are courageous. And you, you thought this passage had nothing to say. Father, we come before you. I thank you for the men and women in this church who have proven worthy of honor by caring more about them or uh, caring more than just about themselves for those who have been consistent in their love for those who have served in tough times as well as easy for those who have been cooperative and who have been engaged in small groups and have served as family members fellow workers and fellow soldiers father god we need all of these five characteristics in our own lives and to help us, every man, every woman, to be more courageous, to be willing to walk hundreds of miles, to deliver an offering, to do whatever it takes, Father, to be willing to set aside their own agenda if that's what it takes. Help us to be considerate of each other's fears and each other's decisions and weaknesses and differences. May we use the model of Timothy and Epaphroditus to motivate us to change our lives in the name of Jesus. And if you agree with me, say amen. Thank you guys. You're loved. Have an amazing week.